Don't ask me What you know is true Don't have to tell you I love your precious heart Hello, my name is Holly Lewis I'm Lawson Keeney And I am Jean Lewis And welcome to The Long Watch Where we stick to the list for better or worse This week we have watched a film that's quite near and dear to me, actually it is yet another cult film, but wildly different from last week's. We have watched the 2001 hard-to-describe film Donnie Darko. It's part of a genre that I like to call the fucked coming-of-age story. It's actually part of the genre I like to call disaffected white people. <laughs> John Hughes, but depressed. But before we get into that, we're going to talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? All right, this week I have watched a whole bunch of things. A very horror-heavy week this week. First off, I watched Ghosts of Mars, the science fiction horror film directed by John Carpenter. Heard of it. Yeah. It is about a crew of space soldiers on Mars in the near future. Uh, they travel Space to... Marines, Lawson. No, not really. They're more... I suppose they're more space police. Space cops. Yeah, they're not really military. Yeah, it's probably space police is probably the best. Yeah, no, but they, call them space cops. Yeah, sure, whatever. They travel to this uh, outpost on the outskirts of the settlements to pick up a prisoner who has the awe-inspiring name Desolation Williams. <laughs> <laughs> that is cool. He is played by cool Ice Cube. Uh, eh, I don't know if that really mm, that doesn't inspire desolation in me. Well, you are right to be concerned, Sean. (laughs) They arrive at this outpost to find it deserted, bloody, the remnants of some huge conflict going on there, and they discover that Martian ghosts have been released from an underground cavern that mining has opened up, and they're possessing people and causing them to kill If they're ghosts, can't they go through solid matter? No. Well, it's some sort of... Look, don't ask me for logic in this movie. It that's not how it works. No, they can't pass through solid matter. Anyways, they've then got how a team are they ghosts. Of, for Christ's sake, Sean, just let this is gonna take a long time if this is the level that you're operating at today. <laughs> I've got eight things to talk about. And they've got to team up with Desolation Williams to stay alive. This is just a total mess. I do not know what happened to John to John Carpenter. See, ever since I met you, John, every time I see the name John, I automatically say John. <laughs> yes! Makes me stumble. That was my plan all along. The staging here, the script, the scares, they're all just terrible. How is this the same man who made Halloween, who made The Thing, who made these incredible movies? It he made Christine, for Christ's yeah, sake. It looks awful. It looks like an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation uh, with those... Those dodgy sets that had a charm to them when they were 1989 television budgets. But when they are a Sony Screen Gems release in 2001, it, no. There's a lot of confused ideas here. Ideas that just seem like they thought, oh, well, that could be interesting. And so then they just threw it in like this pointless framing device where a survivor of the events of the film, played by Natasha Henstrich, who you will recall was the alien in Species, mm. she 
is being, she is one of the space cops and she is being interviewed by a tribunal after the events of the film and that's sort of the framing device. But it's pointless and they also, instead of intercutting between what's happening between different groups of characters throughout the story, because of this framing device, she'll tell what happened to her and then she'll say, oh, and later on, so-and-so told me what happened to them. So then they just rewind and see the, the whole other thing from another perspective and it kills the pacing dead i mean there's this other idea that they seem to be going for something that mars has become a matriarchal society and uh, women are in charge of a lot of things and so you've got this squad commander played by pam greer of the space cops who is this kind of predatory lesbian who is kind of like harvey weinsteining all of the other women in the squad for career opportunities and it has nothing to say it's just this thing that it just sort of throws out there in the first few minutes and it just has no point to it it's got these ideas that it just raises and does nothing with i mean what a thing to happen in your life where your name becomes shorthand for just being absurdly terrible to people couldn't have happened to a more deserving guy (laughs) and the bad guys they're all just rejects from an alice cooper music video I mean, they're all, they're all just going around with, like, weird piercings and, you know, they've cut themselves in ways that, that they look like red tattoos, basically. And it, it's all just... They devolve into a faceless horde at a certain point. There's no personality to any of them. There's probably an essay to be written on its tone-deaf colonial representation but that'd be taking this movie way more seriously than it deserves. There's this whole thing at the end of the Martian ghosts. I was kind of on their side because they're like, hang on, you're on our planet. You've drilled into one of our burial sites. And there's this whole bit at the end where all of these characters, Natasha Henstridge, Jason Statham is there as another one of the space cops looking exactly the same as he does now, except with hair, which is somewhat disturbing. Yeah, uh, they they're like, I don't care about the Martians. This is our planet now, and it's it's kind of like, wow, you guys don't even know what you're like the 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 connections that you're conjuring, do you? Mm. You wouldn't be thinking the same thing if the Martians invaded Earth. Mm. I mean, it's a decent cast. I mean, the aforementioned Greer, Henstridge, and Statham. You've also got Clea Duval and Joanna Cassidy, but they're all terrible. These are good actors, but they're terrible here. Ice Cube, bless him, is trying his heart out, but he hasn't at this stage of his career reached the the level of acting ability that he can conjure now. Terrible effects. This was apparently a $28 million movie. I call bullshit on that. It looks like it was made for $4 million. It looks... Again, it just looks awful. It is in all ways a generic bad horror movie. It could have been made in the 1980s. If you showed me this exact same movie and told me it was made in 1985... I would believe you. Even the music, which is John Carpenter doing his synth score stuff, is just generic. It's like someone copying a John Carpenter score. Mm. This was his second last film. He didn't get to make another one for nine years after this. Then he made The Ward, which was apparently even worse. And he's just not directed a film since. What a whimper of a way to end a career. I mean, he has was probably the most influential horror filmmaker since the Universal Monsters era. It was like him and Wes Craven. 
I think he's more influential than Wes Craven. I think he was doing a lot of the same things that Wes Craven was doing in terms of the cosmic stuff, but he also birthed the slasher genre and he birthed the influx of science fiction horror with The Thing. And I mean, what an incredible career and what a startling way to end it, you know? I mean, now he's focused on his music, which... Yeah, I would like... I would just really like... I don't want that to be the end of his career. He's still... He's, what, 70? Something around there? He's got another another movie in him, I feel like. Like, get Blumhouse to give him $5 million and carte blanche to do whatever he wants. Mm. He's pretty connected to those most recent Halloween films. Yeah. Like, producer stuff, he does the scores, Mm. which have been really great. But in regards to the Natasha Henstridge character, I would like to read you this outstanding anecdote from IMDb Trivia. Courtney Love was originally cast, but she left the project after her then-boyfriend's ex-wife ran over her foot in her car while she was training for the picture. Huh. Ran over her foot? Yes. How does that happen? Well, John, you get in the car... And then, say a person was standing <laughs> close to it, you just run over their foot. Yeah, sure, but if you know the car has started, because cars make noise when you start them, you step away from the car so you don't get run over. Well, you and I do, but maybe Courtney Love doesn't. Next up, I watched Jeepers Creepers. It is a monster movie directed by Victor Salva, and it follows two siblings, two college-age siblings, Trish, played by Gina Phillips, and Darry, played by Justin Long, and they're travelling back home for the holidays through isolated middle America, and they see a sinister figure in a coat and hat, who's played by Jonathan Breck, dumping a body down a hole. And he sees them, and they are pursued. And they discover over the course of the film that he is not human. He is some sort of ancient creature, some demon. I don't know. So, let's start out by addressing the child-abusing elephant in the room. Victor Salva, the director here, is a convicted pedophile. And it is very tempting to read this movie as a allegory for that. The idea that this monster is called The Creeper, that he is pursuing these two young uh, characters around the place. It's, it's tempting to try and attach the narrative allegorically to Salva's own criminal history. And I think... I, I don't think, though, that that works. I don't think that you can properly square that circle and connect it like that. I think that uh, that is also maybe giving a convicted child molester too much credit for self-awareness. Mm. I've got to say, too, like, holy crap, on the behind-the-scenes interviews with him, he's going, yeah, I showed it. I showed the uh, I showed the first cut to my buddy Brian Singer, and he was really frightened by it. That's a yikes. Really? I mean, that interview was done before all of the allegations against Brian Singer, but... Whew. The movie itself is really, really good, though. This is a very, very good monster movie. It's got a lot of atmosphere, a lot of tension. The first act is the most tense, which is really them trying to sneak into the creeper's lair. And this is there that they find out his true nature and all of the horrible things he's been doing for centuries. The pace only quickens after that. It... It shifts tone and it shifts style of horror until by the end, what we're really doing here is a monster version of Assault on Precinct 13 with this monster just tearing through a police station full of cops with shotguns. Like, it gets bigger and wilder as the movie goes on. But the plot hinges itself on a deeply stupid choice. (laughs) 
there is a choice that the characters make after about 20 minutes and I'm like, no, 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 you do not do this. It's the most, it is the most illogical decision I've seen a character make in a horror movie for quite a while. And Trish is irritating as a character as well. She is just very nails on a chalkboard throughout much of this movie. The Creeper is a compelling monster, though. His design is very good. This sort of mysterious-looking figure in a long overcoat and, and a hat. They keep him obscured a lot. You don't really see his face until very late in the film. And the horror is very well-staged as well. There's very creative framing on the way that certain scenes are shot. There's a very nice use of the titular song, Jeepers Creepers. It's well-made. It's a tense film. And there are a lot of cool supporting characters in it as well that I really liked. There's a psychic that turns up. That's kind of a dodgy idea, but the actress makes it work. She's really just exposition to explain to us what this thing is at the end. But it kind of lacks a real ending. It, sh it sort of just stops and you feel like there should be another 15 minutes. But apparently there were, were budget cuts that just before they were ready to film, they lost a big part of the budget. And so they had to scramble and basically they cut what had been the finale. You guys have seen this, right? I have. Ages ago. Ages ago. Yeah. Before you knew about Salva's history. Yes. Yes. Did you see the second one? Yes. Uh, I... Pretty sure we did. There's the one with the... the... I don't recall the second well, one. Well, I'll get into that now. And, and the first one is available on Binge and Foxtel now if you're in Australia and you're, in, and you're interested. Jeepers Creepers 2, again directed by Salva, takes place four days after the first film. We get a little more... We get this in the first film. We get a little more explanation in the second here that the Creeper is up and about for 23 days once every 23 years. And then he goes back in a hibernation. He's got to kill and consume people to... I don't know what he's after, really. He's killing... The... It's kind of like a Pennywise thing. Kind of, yeah. He's after, he's after their body parts. He is. He's after their body Cause, parts. Because, like, it heals him when he gets injured. Yes. He gets half of his head blasted off in the second one, and he decapitates a character and absorbs their head onto his own body. So, yeah, there's... That's what really what he's after is he's looking to preserve himself for the next 23 years of hibernation. In any case, he has stranded a school bus full of teenagers on their way back from a championship game in the middle of nowhere. And he has got them all trapped inside and he's sort of taken them out one by one. Their only hope is Jack Taggart, played by Ray Wise, whose young son he, uh, the Creeper, killed earlier on in the 20, this particular uh, 23 day cycle. Does this ring a bell? Have you seen this? Yep, I'm pretty sure we have. It rings a bit of a bell, but it has been quite a while. This doesn't add much new, but it does its thing really, really well. It is a siege movie on a bus. The Creeper doesn't want everyone it comes across. It's looking for specific people that can serve its needs. So the way that it learns what it uh, which people it needs is is through a sense of smell, that when people get afraid, he can smell whether whether they have a part that is compatible with him. And so not everyone on the bus needs to be killed by the creeper. And they start to figure that out. And that creates tension. Uh, do the, the people that the creeper maybe doesn't want, should they try and run? Would they be pursued? You know, should they chuck everyone else, people that the creeper does want outside yeah. of the bus and let him take them. There's good mounting tension here. It's maybe 10 minutes too long, but it maintains a really compelling pace. 
And again, there's some really cool horror ideas. The Creeper has wings, and Jeepers Creepers 2 has a bigger budget. So we see him in flight a lot more this time around. There's a scene where, after they've broken down, the teachers, the chaperones for this trip, are out in, you know, the, the sun's just gone down, they're trying to see what's going on, and they've lit, lit some road flares that they, they're holding so that in case another car comes along, they don't just get run over in the middle of the night. And then the creeper comes down and grabs one of them. And they go up into the air and screaming and everyone's like, what happened, what happened, what happened? And then a flare just like lands down in front of the truck, the one, the flare that the teacher had been holding. There's some cool ideas like that. And it's an ensemble cast. There's not really a main character here. It gives a lot of equal time to characters. In fact, the initial hero candidate that that most people would probably expect to be the main character, given how horror movies tend to tend to do things, turns out to be a, a homophobic racist coward. Like there's and it, it, there's just an interesting way that it it goes through all of these characters on the bus and explores them all and the way that they interact with each other. It works well. It's nothing groundbreaking, but it works really well. It's you get a lot more of the creeper this time around. He's clearly lit now. There's a lot of light on him. You can see him a lot better. And there's a give and take there. There's less mystery surrounding him, but there's more interesting specifics that we get. And also, you got the mystery in the first one. Yeah. Now you're seeing the creeper in full I, I, action. I don't know what the deal is with this movie and psychics. He ins- Salva insists on putting a psychic into each of these films. We get a girl in here who's never had psychic visions before, but now starts having them. It just feels like kind of a, a narrative shortcut, and I, I never really bought it in any of these films. Again, it's tempting to try and graft on a allegory to Salva's history here. The whole father chasing a character called the Creeper, who earlier on abducted and assaulted his son. There's certainly... You can graft an allegory there. It probably fits a bit better here than it does uh, in the first film. But again, I'm not sure that it quite matches up. 100%. 100%. This is just a much more action-y film, though. There's much more effects, it's much more stunt-heavy, and it's still very well shot and staged. The CGI is better, but it's more frequent. And the acting won't win any awards, but it does work. It's available on Foxtel Now and Stan in Australia, if anybody is interested. Next up, I watched Jeepers Creepers 3. It is directed by... You mean a third one? Yes, they did, in 2017. Oh, yeah, yeah, that. It is again directed by Victor Salva. It is not a sequel. It takes place between one and two in the four days between them. The Creeper is rampaging around the place. There are many characters in it. There is a hunting group comprised of the family members of his victims from the previous 23-year cycle. There's an old woman who lost her grand, who lost her son in uh, the previous cycle and is looking after her granddaughter. There's all of these characters in it and there's not really much of a plot at all. It's much shakier this time around. It's just a bunch of vignettes. And we know where it's going. We know that they're not going to stop the Creeper because he's going to turn up at that school bus in four days. Mm. They're entertaining vignettes, but they're getting really rote here. And the Creeper jumps the shark now. He's, like, turned into this weird James Bond monster where he's got all of these gadgets, (laughs) weird drone bombs that he sends out on remote control and stuff, and it's... It's just, it's too much. His, his truck reappears and it's got all of these booby traps in it and, and things. It's sort of like Jigsaw, uh, almost. 
meets the creeper. It, it brings back the main cop from the first film, played, played again by Brandon Smith. And they just pretend that he's not 16 years older. This movie was made a long time after the first two. They just pretend that this is taking place two or three hours after the end of the first film. And they just ignore the fact that this is a man who's clearly almost over... He is over a decade and a half older now. He might as well be a new character for for as much connective tissue as... It just wasn't necessary for him to be the same character. And there's another cameo as well from the first film that is both pointless and ruined by the fact that the actor is credited on the back of the box. (laughs) There's no real interesting characters here except for this old woman, this grandmother, Galen Brandon, who's played by Meg Foster. And you can thank Meg Foster for her being at all interesting. I don't know if you would recall, but in the first film, before they even meet the Creeper, they're talking about how there was this urban legend of this couple that disappeared on this highway that they were on the way to prom and they never found the bodies and then later on when they go down to the creeper's lair they find their remains well this woman galen brandon is the mother of the 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 male half of that couple so there's some interesting stuff there sort of connecting it back to the the first film and they start to approach a a reveal about the creeper about his origins about what he is that is infuriating because they ultimately don't tell you. They set it up so that the characters find out, but they don't tell the audience what it is that they've discovered. And there's a prequel being made, so... That I don't know probably... if it's a prequel or not, but... Um, oh, it is. It's a prequel. I mean, it's infuriating and it's cheap. Again, what's with the psychics? Why does this old lady have to be a psychic? What's with it getting getting thrown in here. And then it, by the end of it, it just gets too clever with the continuity. It's clearly cheaper as well. It salvers repeating too many tricks. There's a lot of slow motion with the noise dropping out over the slow motion to emphasize a big moment. There's still some good images here. As you already mentioned, Sean, there is a fourth film coming out this year. It is not involving Salva at all. It is the beginning of a new trilogy. It's called Jeepers Creepers Reborn. So... I hope that they that they don't totally ignore the tease that they've set up because that would be kind of infuriating. But how how much they want to marry their uh, their story to Salva and what exactly. he's given them, I don't know. Would I you mean, watch... you're never going to be able to remove his like handprints from the character. Sure, but but you know what? You're never going to yeah. be able, you were never going to be able to remove Brian Singer from the X Men yeah, story. No. Yeah. So. At, a, at a certain point, you know, you need to figure out how you're going to, whether that's a deal breaker for you or not. And everyone else is, everyone's going to come to their own personal decision. What did you think of the Jeepers Creepers movie that you saw? Again, it was a while ago, but it's got those striking images of the Creeper. It's got sort of that interesting mythology behind him that he comes back every 23 years, 23 days. And that's interesting it creates this window where just chaos occurs when he is out there anyways uh jeepers creepers 3 is available for streaming on prime video in australia if you're interested prime video didn't shell out for the first two but they they are interested in having the the worst one (laughs) on their surface who knows i mean this is I think it's different right stuff. I mean, Screen Media's got the rights to Jeepers Creepers 3, and I, I'm not entirely sure, but I think Jeepers Creepers and Jeepers Creepers 2 are both. They're a different company 
Francis Ford yeah. Coppola was involved in producing them. Anyway, I next watched Joyride. It is a horror thriller. Some would say slasher. I would not because that conjures a very specific image in your head of Michael yeah. Myers or Jason Voorhees. Yes, a slasher is like a monster killer physically attacking people, yeah. like a knife or hmm. slashing, yes. you know? This is directed by John Dahl. It is about a guy named Lewis, played by Paul Walker. He is on his way home from college, and he plans to meet up with his crush, Venna, played by Lily Sobieski from another college, and he's going to give her a lift home. So they're going to hang out with each other in the car, and he's hoping, hoping something will happen along the way. But he has to make a detour for his layabout brother, Fuller, played by Steve Zahn, to bail him out of prison. Did you say this was Joyride? Yes. On IMDb, it's called Roadkill. I will get to that. Okay. Fuller's a bit of a of an idiot. He thinks it, it'll be hilarious to play a cruel prank on a trucker over the CB radio named Rusty Nail. That's his his name. <laughs> it that's such a trucker name. He is voiced by Ted Levine, and unfortunately for them, Rusty Nail is a murder trucker, and he is very Ooh. upset that he has been pranked, and so he starts to pursue them across the highways. What what is it with Paul Walker movies and angry truckers? Mm. Yeah? Yeah, this time it's a prank. He's not he's not stealing his DVD VHS combo sets. <laughs> <laughs> but I do like how you said he's a murder trucker. Yeah. Like, well, it is a very specific brand. Yeah, it's like sort of the... Truckers are the backbone of the societies in which they exist. In Australia, truckers are incredibly important. And even more so in America... And I just like how there's a murder superhighway almost with all of these, this sort of subsection of the culture of murder truckers. Well, there are, it's not necessarily truckers, but there are certain highways in America that actually more people disappear or are murdered along there than in most other places. I'm not saying that it's the truckers are doing it. It's the nature of the fact that it's a highway, that it's it's people that, you know, it's very hard to track them down because... They could have been from New York, they could have been from LA, they could have been, you know, there's Many no were. localized area to investigate. There's no there's no hunting ground to sort yeah. of a pattern in. And there's and it's the middle of nowhere, there's no witnesses, you know, that kind of thing. Anyway. And also the thing of if they're a person who goes missing on the highway, the chances of the police being interested in finding them as well is minimal at best. Anyway, so you brought up the titling on IMDb. On IMDb it's called Roadkill. In Europe and Australia, it is called Roadkill. I've decided to call it Joyride because that was the original title and also because of another reason that I will get to when I discuss the sequels. This is very tension-based. It's very character-heavy. It's not a traditional slasher movie. It walks a very fine line, keeping its characters likeable. It barely manages it. They really are pretty cruel to this guy Rusty Nail and it really is only because Rusty is a psychopath that we are still on their side at the end of the movie. <laughs> like it scrapes along the finish yeah. line. That's interesting though. It's kind of interesting that they're assholes. Well, not everyone's going to be yeah. a decent person. It's very Duel, the Steven Spielberg movie Duel, meets The Hitcher. They're being menaced mm. on the road by this big truck and the narrative escalates and things get more complex. It, it builds up into this pretty decent finale. But there are four alternate endings. One alternate ending, okay. You, you, you tried something out, maybe it didn't work, maybe your test audiences didn't like it. Yeah, maybe this studio got a bit iffy on it. Yeah, four alternate endings, you have a serious problem. <laughs> 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because you clearly don't understand where you want the story to go. Exactly. You don't know where you want to end it. Yes. And that's a really big problem when it comes to forming any sort of narrative. It looks okay. The desert, and it's desert and flatlands mostly. And the actors are all okay. Ted Levine is perfect casting as this voice on the other end of the radio. You never see him. Like, Ted Levine is not a physical presence in the movie. He is just a voice. And let me tell you, he, he was born to voice a murderous trucker. Like, that voice is perfect for it. Apologize. Right. No, just do it. Apologize to him? Yeah. I'll do it. Listen, you sick fuck. Pathetic, lonely, walkie-talkie, freak show motherfucker. You're not getting anything from me. You know why? Because I have something more powerful than your psychosis. It's called a volume knob. And the only thing I need to do to make you go away is to turn it counterclockwise. You got that? You copy that? You're no black sheep. You really ought to get that fixed. Get what fixed? Your tail light. Apparently he was brought in in post-production. Yeah, in the original filming it was... They, what was it? Eric Roberts. Julia Roberts' brother. Ah. And they have a, they have a couple of scenes on the disc that have the original voice in it for comparison. And it's so much better with Ted Levine. Like, that voice, that mm. sort of... I mean, it's the Buffalo Bill voice. It's... it's mm. There's just so much more instant menace behind it. Yeah, there's, there's a kind of fucked-up softness. Mm. But most interestingly, probably to us, is that this is a very early J.J. Abrams movie. Mm. Uh, he is the scriptwriter of this, the co-writer, and also a co-producer. Uh, this is really early on in his career. Felicity was on the air. He hadn't done Alias yet. That was about to start. He hadn't done Lost yet. He hadn't done Mission Impossible or any of that stuff. This is very early on. And it's just an interesting artifact that here is this little low-budget, well, comparatively low-budget road thriller that the writer of which ultimately goes on to direct Star Wars and Star Trek and create Lost and be, you know in charge of a bunch of DC Universe TV shows on HBO Max and, and things like that. It's, it's it's an interesting career development. Next up, I watched Joyride 2, Dead Ahead. It is a direct-to-video film directed by Louise Monod. And there is this engaged couple, Melissa, played by Nikki Acox, and Bobby, played by Nick Zano, who you should know as playing Nate Haywood in Legends of Tomorrow. Yep, yeah. And he was also in Final Desti- The Final Destination. Yeah. yeah, he gets his ass pulled out. Yeah. By the pool. Yeah. They're travelling with Melissa's sister Kayla, played by Laura Jordan, and her boyfriend Nick, played by Carl Schmidt. They're on the way to Vegas for an engagement party. And the car breaks down in the middle of nowhere. So they come across this all locked up house that looks like no one's been there in quite a while. They find this old car. They decide to borrow it. That they're going to use it to drive to the nearest town, get a tow truck to repair their own car, and then they will leave the car back at the house in a note along with it. Unfortunately for them, this is the house of Rusty Nail, the murder trucker. Hmm. Played now by Mark Gibbon, because Ted Levine wasn't coming back for this bullshit. And he kidnaps Bobby and makes them play sick games to get him back. It's weird that this gets a seven years later direct-to-video sequel. It's just an odd pull. The first one only Hmm. made $36 million on a $23 million budget. It's not a huge, you know, success story. And Rusty is nowhere as creepy here. He's just a jigsaw knockoff now. He's making them do all of these challenges to get Bobby back. Gibbon is no Ted Levine. 
shock horror. Mm. I mean, why is he even doing this? What is his deal? Like, there's no real justification this time around. Like, the first time, okay, he was pranked and he snapped. But here it's like, well, why are you even doing this to these people? It has a sleazy vibe, a very sleazy vibe. The opening is Rusty Nail picking up a sex worker in a service station. It's raining. He's being all creepy to her. She's sitting next to him in the front seat. He rolls down the window so that where it's still raining outside and says, get it wet for me. And uh, when she's like, you know, screw this, this guy's crazy. She tries to climb out of the window. He rolls the window up so she's trapped half in, half out of the window. And then he speeds off with her like that, drives up against another big rig truck and lops her head off, driving past it. And that's the opening scene of the movie. And I'm like, oh, so that's what we're doing here. I mean, at least they did it in the opening scene so I could adjust my expectations accordingly. But (laughs) it's badly put together by Mono. It's awkwardly shot and edited. The cast tries. It takes Zeno out of play too early. He spends far too much of his time tied up and gagged in the back of Rusty Nail's truck. But Schmid plays an asshole very, very well. Again, it's just an odd pull. Next up, I watched Joyride 3 Roadkill. That is why I've chosen the Joyride 3 name, because when they got to Joyride 3, even in Europe and Australia, they my understanding is they just called it Joyride 3 Roadkill, because mm. otherwise it would have been Roadkill 3 Roadkill, or Roadkill 3. I will say, points to them for the, the continuing use of fatality-related road puns as titles and subtitles. Joyride, Dead Ahead, Roadkill. It's about the smartest thing that these movies have been doing. <laughs> this is again a director video sequel directed by Declan O'Brien. This time it's NASCAR people on the way to the race. They anger Rusty Nail, murder trucker, played by Ken Kurzinger, who played Jason once in Freddy vs. Jason. That's his claim to fame. This time, I shit you not, he is after them because they drive rudely while they pass him in traffic. That is, the, that is the justification now. Well, did they indicate properly? Did they overtake him? Look, it's a it's a real dick move, what they do. The arsehole that's driving the car intentionally sort of, like, spits up gravel behind him. Uh, but still... You see, he takes a lot of pride in his truck. He does, but then he's like... He spends the rest of the movie, like, the next 12 hours pursuing these people across the highways. I'm like, guy, don't you have, like, things to deliver? <laughs> Can you see? I don't it? think he does. I think he's Maybe. just no, like he does. He does. Murder. He absolutely does. We see it in the. He's he's driving. He's transporting frozen meat into state. Huh. So trucker is both job and lifestyle. Yeah, Rusty, mate. Don't you have somewhere to be? <laughs> yeah, it seems like he does have a place to be. He should. Maybe murder people on the way back. Mm. To be fair, he is a psychopathic murderer, and they just. How does he? Yeah, but how does he keep getting jobs? Like I've seen the way that he takes these people out. His car would be covered in bloodstains and dents and things by the time he gets back to base. So he's, he's going to be the scariest person. Three days late, the meat in the back's gone off. His place is covered in blood and dents. Why would you keep hiring Rusty Nail? Maybe he works for cheap. <sighs> Capitalism. <laughs> well, you know that nobody steals his stock. Mm. Yeah, because he doesn't have DVDs in the back. No one steals his stock, he takes their lives. The, look, Rusty Nail, the murder trucker, is just not a good franchise villain. He's no Freddy. He's no Michael Myers. He is no uh, Jason. 
he is just a bearded guy in flannel. Because of course he's in flannel. <laughs> so what you're saying is, if I wore flannel, I would look like him. <laughs> Maybe if you were half a foot taller and much, much more muscle, then yes. <laughs> He's just a guy. He has no reason to be doing any of this. And it, there's just no mystique to it. There's like all of the most successful slasher villains. All the most successful horror movie villains. Even going back to The Creeper, which we just talked about. There's something compelling about them as a personality that, yeah. that makes their continued presence in the series a selling point. And here, there's a mythology. Yeah. And here I'm just like, well, what's this guy's problem? You know, why is he doing this? And that it's treated like a selling point. It's on the back of the box. It's rusty nail is rusty nail return. Like we're all sitting there being, we've been waiting. I mean, this came out another six years after that second one. Like we've been just waiting there. Sitting there, there, there who is the contingent of people who are sitting there going, I want to know what happened to rusty nail. Rusty nail is my favorite horror villain. I want to know what happens. I don't know who this is. Who keeps greenlighting these movies? Anyways, I was real tired of it by the time I got to this last film. I mean, it's it's just absurd. Like I said, he's just messing with people that cut him off in traffic now. Uh, and it's way more mean-spirited than the first two films. It is the most violent of these movies. Uh, I will tell you that it, this time they seem to have had the idea of, well, what if he uses his, his trucker-related tools? We'll have truck-themed kills. <laughs> They're all truck-themed kills. Well, the jack to jack up the thing to replace the yeah. tyre. Well, what if we put someone's head between the jack and then it's just like a vice that closes in and then his eyes pop out? What if we tie someone to the front of a truck so that their upper half is over the top of the... over the roof of the truck and then they drive under a low-clearance bridge? Things like that. So not smart. They're smarter than what they have... Well, they're more creative than what they have been doing. Up until now, Rusty's really just been ramming them with his truck. <laughs> <laughs> so he's taking it up a notch. Yeah. You get a generic cast of dead meat here. There's no character development whatsoever. It's just devolved into repetitive torture porn. Mm. Uh, it's a subpar script with subpar performances. Jake Manley is the best in it. He is charming in a dorky way. I emphasise that this is not. This is a sliding scale here. Uh, none of these people have this on their reels. I guarantee you. No one else can really get a character out of what they're doing. What what they've been given. There is a decent score here, though, by Claude Foisy and Pierre Denis Cote. So there's that at least. Anyways, I was very grateful to move on from the Joyride series. I bid Rusty Nail farewell, and I moved on to one of his serial killer compatriots. Jack the Ripper in From Hell. Jack the Ripper and Rusty Nail right up there together as two cultural icons of serial killers. Two serial killer brothers. Yeah. This is the last movie I've got to talk about this week. It is a mystery thriller directed by Albert and Alan Hughes. It's based on the graphic novel by Alan Moore, which was also illustrated by Eddie Campbell. It is a fictionalised recounting of the Jack the Ripper investigation. Inspector Frederick Abilene, played by Johnny Depp, and sex worker Mary Kelly, played by Heather Graham, are the focus here. And it gets caught up in all sorts of weird conspiracies and other bits of strangeness. The idea is good. I'm kind of like, we're due for another Jack the Ripper story sometimes. It, sometimes oh, yeah. It, it's kind of surprising that it's not 
used more in popular fiction at this point. There was a big glut of them in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. I mean, Sherlock Holmes has fought Jack the Ripper multiple times in multiple different movies. Batman yep. fought Jack the Ripper? We talked about the Batman versus Jack the Ripper in Gotham by Gaslight. There was the Michael Caine miniseries where he played Abilene in the 80s. But really, since the 80s, it's it's gone quite dormant. This is, a, this is the only big one uh, there. I feel like we're probably due for a, a re-examination of it on the... the yeah. The 150th anniversary. And really, Jack the Ripper is such a fascinating figure because of the horrible things he did, but more than that, the mystery behind behind it. Because it was so long ago, whatever, you know, solution to the mystery someone finds, there's evidence that is contrary to it. Yeah. You're never, we are never going to know. This is jumbled in execution. It verges significantly from the comic book and forget the historical record here this is not at all trying to be a historical film this is a penny dreadful mm. it's slow to start it takes a long time for abilene and kelly to meet there's two different plots going on for quite a while and it definitely needs some editing to compress it all a bit more and make it flow a bit more it passes by some interesting historical stuff too for this hackneyed romance between Abilene and Kelly, it feels crass. The murders and the aftermath of them seem a little grubby and exploitative. There's a very MTV aesthetic in the way that it's been shot. There's a lot of quick cuts and kind of edgy camera tricks that really date it now. The killer that they identify in this is a theorized suspect. It's ignored by most uh, most serious historians because the justification for why this person may have committed the murders is truly wild and involves among other things a masonic conspiracy mm. the most reasonable solution is the most probable oh, yeah. it, solution like all these things oh it, it was this guy it was it was the prince or it was a member of the royal family or something it's never going to be that interesting it was it's going to be like gary from down the road who had a scary collection of knives you know it's mm. just going to be some guy I mean, that's who it always is. You know, all of these people. Ted Bundy. No one had ever heard of Ted Bundy. The first time they ever heard of him was when they found out he was a serial killer. It's just going to be some disturbed guy. Anyways, I, I guessed who the culprit was because I recognised the actor's voice. Yeah. <laughs> they do this, you know, him shot from behind as he is, you know, making sinister proclamations and things and... No, I, I recognise that voice. I knew who it was. Depp is restrained. He's sort of testing out the Jack Sparrow voice. But Graham is usually better than she is here. Ian Holm and Ian Richardson steal the show as these upper-class British types. And there's good production value recreating Victorian London, especially when I found out it was made for only $35 million. I really expected it to be more after having watched the film because it looks really good. It is available for streaming on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> yep, because of Star. <laughs> on the Star uh, catalogue in places Jack with Star. Jack the Ripper, Disney Princess. Yes, I don't know um, where <laughs> I, I imagine it's on Hulu or, or whatever the equivalent yep. is in America where they don't have Star, but yeah, that's an incongruity that, that tickles me every time I see a movie like that. Yeah, I mean, Alien yeah. is also on Star. Hills and Have Eyes. Hills Have Eyes, exactly. <laughs> Like, Hi, kids. Want to hear about Jack the Ripper? 
gosh, Mickey, why did you stab us so many times? Uh, he's one of the most brutal killers in all the world. <laughs> <laughs> now listen up, children. He used to cut open the bellies of sex workers and remove their organs. <laughs> did someone comes down to Louisiana, it's like, bro, I'm the X-Men. Right! <laughs> Make sure you listen to what your parents say, or the ghost of Jack the Ripper might climb out from under your bed and steal your hearts. <laughs> that went a little smoky the bear there. That's true. Only you can stop forest fires and sex-crazed oh, serial bother. killers. <sighs> uh, so, so, the first thing we watched this week was a movie called Escape from Pretoria, which is based on the very true story of the escape Oh right, sorry. I just want to say before I before I forget again, I meant to say this at the top. I said last week that Session Nine was the first movie filmed on video to receive a theatrical release. That is obviously incorrect. It isn't. I mixed up my words. It is the first filmed on digital HD video. Mm, yeah. Uh, so, Escape from Pretoria is a 2020 thriller film based on the real life prison escape by three political prisoners in South Africa. This is Apartheid, South Africa, 1979. It stars Daniel Radcliffe as Tim Jenkin and Daniel Weber as Stephen Lee. Two white South Africans carrying out anti-apartheid missions in South Africa. One, one of the things that they did was they would create these sort of propulsion devices that would shoot uh, paper pamphlets with anti-apartheid messaging in certain very crowded areas. The apartheid South African government, not too fond of that. Um, not too fond of people expressing non-racist beliefs. And they were captured, they were arrested, and sentenced to very, very long prison sentences in the Pretoria prison. This movie is fantastic. It's very focused on the perspective of Tim Jenkins, played by Daniel Radcliffe. Radcliffe is outstanding he is he's one of the actors from the and we'll talk about this next week he's one of the actors from the harry potter franchise that has really spoiler alert daniel radcliffe is remarkable here his physicality his act the accent the south african Mm. accent that he brings is very very good and very very close to uh, in my understanding to how tim jenkin actually sounded he did a halfway decent australian accent in that movie yeah. from 2000. I can't forget the name of it. It's a while back now. Mm. He's a he's pretty decent with accent work. Yeah. It, there's a particular moment where it slips into his British, but South African is very close to, like, Dutch-British sort of thing. So you it's, tend to give it a pass. It's actually very close to sort of New Zealand, a New Zealand yeah. accent. Yeah. This is very detail-oriented here. Yes. The steps of the escape, the little details of how the escape happens. One of the things that Tim Jenkins did to escape was he would memorize how the guards' keys looked, then recreate them with pieces of wood he got from the workshop. He made wooden keys from memory. Keep in mind, Tim Jenkins was an engineering student. He already had this sort of like mechanical thinking before he went into the Praetoria prison. There's a real sense of tension here. Mm. Because it's a true story, it is... We know he escapes, but I was unfamiliar with how the escape happened. So it was immediately compelling because of that. The One of the scenes is... they create he, cre- he managed to unlock the immediate gate in front of him. 
but there's a much larger metal door in front of that. So, what he did was he built a contraption where he could reach outside the door and unlock the outside door of his cell. And when he is testing it out one time, because he's not because he's not just going to escape the first time he unlocks the doors, he's methodical in that, in that approach. He accidentally drops the wooden key. Now, if anybody sees that, the jig is up completely. So he gets a piece of gum, attaches it to the end of the broomstick he was using, and spends a good nearly four minutes trying to stick it onto the... Yeah. Stick the key to the gum on the end of the broomstick. And that scene is so tense. There's a lot of really great scenes like that of you are there for every step that they have to make. You are there when they're trying to convince the other political prisoners, you know, to come with them and all of that. And one of them is played by Ian Hart, who we will be discussing next week. He played Professor Quirrell in The Philosopher's Stone or in International... Uh, audience as international audiences would know it the sorcerer's stone no just america yeah <laughs> they they want to make things different they don't know what a philosopher is but anyway but they have really good chemistry it is fascinating to see them working together again because you can see how good daniel radcliffe has really become he he always had a star power about him but he is really exceptional in this, and the direction of these escape scenes, or even the scenes where they are trying to, as you said, unlock the doors and all of that, are just exceptional. The, you can see you see the clockwork movements of the escape. They had to get past ten different doors, and they had like five or six different keys. So, and when they get to the last door. They run out of keys, and how do they get out? It's it's exceptional. Cuts out all of the fat that you would expect from a, a usual prison break movie, and it just focuses on the facts of how they got out. And in that sense, it's a very intricate, tight film, where the tension never lets up. It's very intricate, and also it's fast-paced. Yeah. It's very brisk. And I really appreciated that because, as you know, as you will all know, I'm a big fan of Prison Break movies. I, I really like that genre. This is mixing it with biopic and historical reconstruction. So it's very, very fascinating in that regard. I would highly recommend it. It is on, I believe, Binge. Binge is where is we it? watched it. Yeah, it's on Binge in Australia. We also watched... Back to the Future. This is a time travel film starring Christopher Lloyd, Michael J. Fox, Michael J. Fox, and a bunch of other actors. This is one of those quintessential films for me. It is, it's from my childhood. I have a huge amount of passion for it. I like time travel, ultimately. It is such a fascinating concept, and the Back to the Future franchise, particularly the second one, are perhaps the best examples of time travel in film, and perhaps in fiction entirely. But in this one, Marty McFly, played by Michael J. Fox, goes back in time with the help of... It's the words, I'm sorry, but that's the words of someone who's never seen Doctor Who. It's the simplicity of it sure. that I appreciate. I. It's Kitty's first and... time travel, yeah. Baby's oh, first time travel movie. 
I'm sorry that I don't need to be going back to ancient Rome or creating paradoxes all the time. Anywho, so Christopher Floyd Stock Brown has created a time machine out of a DeLorean. Oh yes, and he is, he is buying uranium, or he is... Sold? Stolen. Stolen uranium from terrorists. He stole, he stole plutonium from Libyan terrorists. Yes. And he has enlisted he the help he was going to make of a, a teenage boy who he has no familial relationship with to come out to a parking lot in the middle of the night to test out his new invention by going back in time to escape from Libyan terrorists. That's Kinda, not exactly yeah. the steps of what happens, Lawson. I think you're you're doing things out of order. No. Doc Brown gets shot dead by the terrorists, and Marty McFly has to escape in the time machine. He hits 88 miles per hour, and due to the flux capacitor, he gets flung back to, what was it, 1955? Yes. Yeah. So this is the time when his parents were around, and he comes into contact with them, and this causes deviations within the timeline where... If he doesn't get back to the future and get his parents to hook up, uh, he and his siblings will disappear from time completely. So he enlists the help of a younger Dr. Emmett Brown, still played by Christopher Lloyd, but in less old man makeup. Yeah. How old is he even supposed to be in those movies? Is he 40? Is he 80? No one knows. No idea. It's Christopher Lloyd. He he is what he is. Exactly. And Um, it... This is a yeah. very significant movie for me. It is has a perfect tone. It is perhaps one of the perfect trilogies mm. of films. But this first one really can work on its own. Yeah. It, it it doesn't require the other two to be enjoyed. It is improved by the other two's presence, but the other two aren't necessary to understand this first one. It has this Spielberg-esque charm that Zemeckis is always really good at bringing forward. Because um, Zemeckis and Spielberg are very similar filmmakers, but Zemeckis has a very interesting eye when it comes to shot composition that and pace. Zemeckis is very cool with pace, too. And it's helped along by a great, great, iconic Alan Silvestri score. Like, the clock tower scene, the fanfare, like, the overall fanfare for Back to the Future is just... Exceptional. It's no wonder that when Ready Player One was made, Spielberg went to Alan Silvestri and said, yeah, basically just do Back to the Future again. So I would really like to discuss these movies as a, this trilogy as a bonus episode yeah. at some point, uh, because that is the only way we would ever get around to dis- discussing them in detail. If we don't create time machines, which I'm in the conceptual stages of myself, but well, through the stuff that we learned through Donnie Darko, time travel only requires metal and water. It's complicated, but I'm I'm figuring it out. Have you had any relationship with Back to the Future? Oh yeah, I watched them all when I was younger. Or I read one of the novelizations when I was younger. Or I watched them before when I started the list, but before we started the podcast, I went mm. through them all. Um, I can't say that they've ever really connected with me hugely. I recognise that they're very well made, but something about them, it just never clicked for me totally. I do like the first one the best. I think that's the best one. Yeah, it's they're good, but for me, I'm looking for something a little more complicated from time travel. So you're looking for something like Primer? Yeah, that, I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. 
I don't quite know. Like, I don't want to come off as, as sounding like I don't like it, because I do like it. I actually like it quite a lot. It's just, it was never, like, a big part of... It was never something that I really, like, loved, and mm. it was never, like, a big yeah. part of my childhood as, a, childhood, as it sounds like it was for yours. Yeah, it's just... I mean, it's it's... It, it certainly has one of the more easily understandable, easily digestible time travel storylines in popular fiction. I mean, it does get complicated in the second film. But it's still in, it's like, still understandable. It's approachable time travel. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I, why I reckon it has such audience appeal yeah. it's, and a, it's such like, a cultural it go, significance. It goes back, Biff steals the almanac, and that changes the future, so they have to go back steal back the almanac and mm. change the future back to Yeah, him. in the second one, where Biff becomes Donald Trump. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that that's particularly complicated. By it gets complicated, I mean that... It gets more complicated than the first. Exactly, that's what I mean. Um, There's more time travel happening Yeah. in the second one. Like, what uh, they believed was how time travel worked gets look, complicated. Since you've already given the game away for next week's episode, I think that Harry Potter did... Baby's first time travel a lot more interestingly than Back to the Future did. I think did calling it, once, it Baby's first time travel is a little bit insulting, don't you think? We're not all fans of Doctor Who, Lawson. I'm all right. I'm. I'm not. It, it's. It's a good entry point into the idea of time travel for mainstream. It's. Mm. It's easy to understand. It's very coherent. You don't have to do a whole lot of thinking or puzzling it out. I think that. But I think that Harry Potter did that in a much more interesting way. That. Well, stable time loop sort of thing. Yeah. Okay, so that's what we're seeing within the week. Now we're going to play for you the trailer to a movie that discusses time travel more esoterically, Donnie Darko. It was as though this plan had been with him all his life, pondered through the seasons. Now, in his 15th year, crystallized with the pain of puberty. <laughs> So, why'd you move here? My mom had to get a restraining order against my stepdad. He has emotional problems. Oh, I have those too. What kind of emotional problems does your dad have? I met a new friend. Real or imaginary? Wake up, Tony. Imaginary. I'm going to tell you a little story today about a young man whose life was completely destroyed by these instruments of fear. I haven't seen stuff. Donnie is experiencing what is commonly called a daylight hallucination. I have to obey him. He saved my life. Have you ever seen a portal? Has he ever told you about his friend Frank, the giant bunny rabbit? The what? Every living thing follows along set path, and... If you could see your path or channel, then you could see into the future, right? I'm not going to be able to continue this conversation. Don't worry. You got away with it. What is going to happen? I only have a few days left before they catch me. gonna stop you should already know that
That was the trailer for Donnie Darko. It is a science fiction and psychological thriller film directed by Richard Kelly, and it follows the titular Donnie Darko, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, a troubled American high schooler in 1988 with a habit of sleepwalking. He lives in upper-class domestic tranquility with his mother Rose, played by Mary MacDonald, his father Eddie, played by Holmes Osborne, his older sister Elizabeth, played by Gyllenhaal's real-life sister Maggie, and younger sister Sam, played by David Chase. Beneath it all simmers discontent, though, as Donnie grows more detached from the world around him, even committing arson, which has prompted his parents to put him into therapy, with Dr. Lillian Thurman, played by Catherine Ross. As we enter the narrative, two events occur in quick succession of each other that change Donnie's life completely. First off, he meets Gretchen Ross, played by Jenna Maloney, a new girl at school who starts dating Donnie, attracted and charmed by his oddities. Secondly, and far more unusually, Donnie sleepwalks out of his house one night in the middle of a vivid dream. He's been summoned by a frightening-looking six-foot-tall rabbit named Frank, played by James Duval, offering cryptic warnings about the world's impending doom in 28 days. To add to that weirdness, when Donnie returns home after waking in the morning, he discovers that he has narrowly avoided being crushed to death by a jet engine turbine which mysteriously fell from the sky directly on top of his bedroom. The only thing is, no airline is missing a jet engine. Oh, and the giant rabbit starts appearing to Donnie while he's awake, offering bizarre advice and seemingly taking control of his actions to commit random property damage. Somehow, it only gets stranger from there. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we all go around and say one by one what our timed 30-second thoughts are of Donnie Darko. Why don't you start us off, Sean? I will cue you up. Are you ready to go? Yep. All right, then. Three, two, one, go. As I sort of said in the intro to this entire episode, this is like a uh, fucked up coming-of-age story. It's... It's in the se- of the same ilk as Heather's, where it's taking the idea of young people and putting them into what is a very complicated philosophical situation. I really enjoy this movie a lot. It has such a particular energy about it. All right, you ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I greatly adore this movie. It is really, really significant to me on an artistic level. Some of the work I've done in the theatre has been directly inspired by Donnie Darko, not just in terms of the content of the plays, but also how I chose to direct them. I I think this is a fantastic film with a very interesting and complex message. Alright. You got me queued up, Sean? Yep. Three, two, one, Frank. I think that this is a really, really interesting movie. It's got a lot of very cool stuff going on, but I do have some problems with it. I do think it is maybe a little too esoteric for its own good at times, in a way that makes me wonder how intentional a lot of what it is doing is. And I do find it very impressive, especially as a first-time directorial piece of work. Done. So it's worth pointing out... It's worth starting with the fact that this is a cult film, that it was not very successful at all when it first came out. It came out a month after 9-11 happened. So the public's interest 
in seeing a film predicated on a jet engine turbine dropping through the roof of a teenager's house uh, not particularly high at that point. It was a small distribution company that had it. They had it coming out at a bad time. People really connected with it, though. Christopher Nolan had seen it before it came out, and he was instrumental in getting it a theatrical release. The same company had distributed Memento, so he had that some sway there. That makes perfect sense, really. And obviously Drew Barrymore was drawn to the material. Like, she came on as a producer and as a star. There's a lot of love for it, but when it came out, it really died on the vine almost immediately. There's a lot of contemporary critics that kind of rejected it, but... In that cult-like way, the same way that Wet Hot American Summer did it, the same way that all of these cult movies did it, there's just something about it that it started to snowball. The discussion around it just got bigger and bigger and bigger until it became something more than anyone ever really thought it could be. It's always an interesting phenomenon. You can never quite tell what it's going to happen with, but that was the way that it really began here. This is Richard Kelly's first film as well. He was about my age when he directed it. Yeah. Which I find hard to fathom. We should also say from the get-go that we are talking about the director's cut here today. Yeah. That of the three of us, the only one who has even seen the theatrical cut is Harley. And how long ago was that? That would have been a few years ago. Yeah. When I first saw the movie. So I know that uh, there are, there is a very loud contingent of the Donnie Darko fan base who would tell us that it is very unwise to even at all watch the director's cut, let alone to have that be the only version that we've watched. But I didn't know that until after the fact, and frankly, I would have watched the director's cut anyway because I'm always inclined to watch to watch director's cuts over theatrical cuts. Yeah, obviously, chief among the director's cuts benefits, perhaps not all would agree that it's benefits, is that it explains more. You get more of an idea of what is really going on in the movie. And so when we talk about what's going on in the movie, a lot of that's going to be informed by the particular version that we watched. And as someone who has seen both versions, you can very easily watch the the theatrical cut of Donnie Darko. You'll come away incredibly confused, but you'll still get a good general sense of tone and story. Hmm. Director Scott just gives you that context. It explores the actual development of the character of Donnie better, explains why he's developing better, and is overall simply a more enjoyable time as a viewer. It orients you better. Yeah, I'd rather know what's going on than be confused. Some people differ in their opinions on that. Some people want to be completely flabbergasted. (laughs) Well, some people want it to be a puzzle that they want to work out. Yeah. But the, the theatrical doesn't give you the pieces True. to solve the puzzle. Yes, though. there's a lot of stuff like the website that they did at the, at the time to promote it, the a, a special edition book that was like a recreation of the old lady's book from the from the movie. I want, to, I want to read that book. So a lot of stuff with the explanations of it are things that have been picked up over the years and that like even like the audio commentary on the DVD, things like that. There's a lot of extra stuff outside of the movie that was required for people even having a decent grasp on the general mechanics of what's going on in the film. And the director, even the director's cut, I would argue, does not have everything that you need to fully 
accurately understand what's going on inside of it. I'm going to be cruel now because John has been insisting that it does. And so I would like you, John, to please explain to us what is happening in this movie and why. Well, what is happening is by Frank telling Donnie to leave his room and by Donnie not being killed by the falling jet turbine, it creates a tangent universe in which Donnie becomes the living receiver. Because of that, characters are drawn to him, like Gretchen, who becomes important later on when she gets run over by the car that Frank is driving, which spurs Donnie on to... Kill Frank. To kill Frank and remove himself from existence by allowing the turbine to kill him, therefore restoring the original timeline and original universe, therefore saving both of them. As the longer a tangent universe exists, it is specified within the novel that Roberta Sparrow wrote, it is told to the audience that that window is 28 days. And after that 28 days, the world will end. All of existence will end. So in a sense, Donnie becomes a sort of messianic figure. So why is Frank appearing to him throughout? Because he is one of the manipulated dead who are there in order to spur the living receiver on to restoring the original universe. So why does he summon Donnie out of bed in the first place, thus creating the Tangent Universe? Because that's the start of the Tangent Universe. Yeah. Yeah. So... The guy responsible for urging Donnie to get rid of the Tangent Universe is responsible for the Tangent Universe's creation in the first place. Yes. Yep. Yes, but the creation of the Tangent Universe was always meant to have happened because that's what happened. But the Tangent Universe is only created because of the actions that later take place in the Tangent Universe. I'm following. I'm just playing devil's advocate here. I, I read a whole bunch of stuff on this, don't worry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This movie takes really determinist stands on how actions occur. So if you think about it in a determinist sense, the tangent universe was always going to be formed because Frank was always going to bring him out of bed yeah, and take him to the golf course. However, that causes the 28-day countdown. So to save both worlds, the tangent universe and the normal universe, Donnie must sacrifice himself. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting it. Yes, I understand I've read, I've, I think I know what's going on. I've read some stuff about it, but... So what, what, what has happened will always happen because it happened. Yeah, exactly. the, it the question happen. of why the Tangent Universe springs up any in the first place... Yes, there's a, there's, in one of the interstitials where we see an excerpt from Roberta Sparrow's book, she says that sometimes they just happen and yeah. no one knows yeah. why. So the jet turbine engine, if it's from the Tangent Universe, as we see at the end... Why would it need to? Why would it ever have crushed Donnie in the in the prime universe if the jet engine turbine is from the tangent universe? Because it has to happen either way. Because the object that causes the tangent universe, there's a specific term for the artifact. The artifact. The artifact. The artifact is not the cause of the tangent universe. It is the living receiver that is. If the living receiver of the artifact lives while receiving it, so to speak, the tangent universe is created. If the artifact kills the living receiver, therefore making them no longer a living receiver, the tangent universe no longer exists. It all comes down to the discussions of fate and destiny within the film. Like, when you see those things coming out of people's chests... The timelines. 
Yeah, that is trying exactly. to set up this idea that everything that these people are doing is predestined. Mm-hmm. And that only the living receiver can stop, can, can sort of move out of that predestination in order to save the original universe and sacrifice the tangent universe. Therefore, sacrificing their own happiness. Like, if you notice over the course of the film, he becomes more attached to people, which makes him scared to fulfill the destiny that is preset for him, as explained by the book written by Roberta Sparrow. Yes. And in that sense, he be- he does become a messianic figure, giving up his own happiness in order to save everybody, which is why, as Harley pointed out to me last night, it is interesting that in that double feature of The Evil Dead and The Last Temptation of Christ, that that movie is actually there, because in The Last Temptation of Christ, The Last Temptation is the a vision of a happy life where he where Jesus grows old, where he becomes a family man, where he has a family, he gets married to Mary Magdalene, and he gives it up because it was predestined that he do this in order to save everybody. So essentially, the Tangent Universe is the last temptation of Donnie Darker. Yeah. <laughs> ultimately. So I believe that the ethos behind this movie is a determinist one, but not a nihilistic determinism. Mm. It is saying, stating that... What happens will happen, but what is up to you is how you respond to it. What is up to you is how you treat other people Mm. along that path. What is up to you is not what happens, but how you affect others. Here's my favourite little pull. What detaches the turbine at the end of the film? What causes the plane in the tangent universe to crash? Because I know what the answer is. What's the answer? Donnie. Mm. He gets telekinesis. He's got powers now. Because he's the living receiver in the Tangent Universe, he has the ability to not only yep. read minds, he also has, has the ability to, to see the time spheres, which are the... This is this something that Richard Kelly chucks out in the audio commentary. The liquid goo face. Yeah, the liquid goo things that come out of people's chest, the time spheres. And he also gets the ability to, to manipulate fire and water. Fire and water are two very significant elements of his vandalism. Mm-hmm. And things he uses to not only tear down establishments, but also the corrupt church of Patrick Swayze's character. It's not really a church, it's more one of those, like... It's a self-help cult. Church in a metaphorical sense. Which draws comparisons, bet- again, between him and the figure of Jesus within Martin Scorsese's The Lost Temptation of Christ. Mm-hmm. It's not a one-to-one comparison, no. it's simply evoking the same sort of emotions. See? And this is the stuff that I really, really like, the paradox of it. Why does it even yeah. start? Because it does. Because it always started. Exactly. Because it always happened. It's like, you know how when you have a string or a thread or something, and you, you tie a knot in the one piece of string, and then when you straighten it out again, there's that little bump? where the knot has come together. That's really what this is. It's the timeline of the universe, and then there's just this little bump where the tangent universe got created and was a little knot that then got resolved and then continued onwards. Yeah. That's exactly what this is. And, and this is the kind of time travel stuff that I, I love the paradoxes. I love the stuff where it messes with you. Yeah. The fact that he is summoned out of bed by Frank, but that's what creates the tangent universe in the first place. But that's always how it was going to happen. But then there's all that stuff about the discussions of God and the discussions of some great puppeteer. The implication is that someone's pulling the strings on all of this. 
that someone or something, whether you want to call it God, the universe, destiny, whatever, is affecting the all of the people in the Tangent universe, that they are manipulating Donnie in such a way to get him to that final destination, mm. which is what accounts yep. for all the bizarre behaviour. It's what accounts for Drew Barrymore telling Gretchen to sit next to the cutest boy in the room, even though she's clearly a competent teacher who would never have done that. There's a manipulated thing. Mm. It's what accounts for... Um, Frank going on a beer run, even though the party has kegs of beer added already. It's what accounts for Roberta Sparrow going out in the middle of the night to check the uh, letter, find the letter, and then read it in that particular moment while the boys are fighting on her front lawn. It spurs those two to go to her house anyway. Because they've been learning about the book where people do that. Yeah. And it also explains the use of Watership Down as a metatextual artifact. Watership Down being a story about the dangers of prophecy and concurrently involving rabbits. And this is the stuff that I love. And this is the stuff that people will tell you is explained to explicitly in the director's cut. To which I respond, what the hell are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) All of this, all of the freeze frames of the excerpts of Roberta Sparrow's book is only present in the director's cut. So how would you get any of that exactly. if you didn't have those things? How would you get the artifact, the living receiver, the manipulated dead, all of that? It's what, how would you get what those things coming out of you? Okay, maybe you could intuit that the, 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 the abyss effect coming out of uh, all of the characters' chests is their personal timeline that they're following without even realising it. You might get that from that Timeline discussion with Noel Wiley. Lifeline. Yeah. So you might get that from that discussion that he has with Noah Wiley. But all of the all of the stuff, all of the stuff with the artifact of having to send the artifact back into the Prime Universe or the Tangent Universe will be destroyed. It's nigh on impossible to piece that together if you don't have the extra stuff that is either added in the director's cut, or is added through the website, through all of the audio commentary on the DVD or the website stuff. There's yeah. a lot going on here that I I think I think actually part of the reason that people didn't like the explanation is that they liked being able to come up with their own explanation. And I think that when that explanation came, and it wasn't what that exp- what their own explanation was, that they had watched this original version for three years before the director's cut came along and just told them. Yeah. I think that for some people that kind of defeated the magic of what it was doing. Look, and it's an example of that, what I like to call the Lost Jedi effect. An audience is getting an explanation that they have built up in their head, in their head, isn't the case. And when the director says, no, it's the case, word of God and all of that shit, it sort of hits them at a really personal place because they have spent so much time working it over in their head personally i just love how batshit confusing this Mm. can be yeah and how complex it is you've really got to think about it and work it all out it's a it's a very heady movie it's 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 not a movie you can be passive in the watching of no oh no you've got to be you got to be switched on to it let's talk a bit about some of the characters we already talked about 
Donnie and his character development from an apathetic person to someone more compassionate and willing to sacrifice themselves. Yeah, on on that note, I I didn't know the core... Like, this is not something that I knew going into it. I, I didn't know what the time loop was. I didn't know what the explanation was or anything. I was experiencing it cold. And one of the readings that I had for the movie was related to the Donnie character is right up until very close to the end, frankly, I was really thinking, well, this could actually be a science fiction-y thing, or it could be in a schizophrenic's head. Mm, yeah, he just happens to have schizophrenia and this be happening. Yeah, and that part of having that disorder is that you piece together very complicated, sometimes convoluted logic that makes a lot of sense to you, but connects things in a way that they're not connected. Mm. You could absolutely look at this movie right up until pretty close to the end, right up until, frankly, he ends up back in bed again with the turbine crashing through the ceiling. You could look at this movie as someone with schizophrenia from from their point of view. Yeah. And I actually kind of like that that part of the movie because I feel like the movie might actually be stronger if there was room for that interpretation to still be intact at the end. I'm not sure it would have been intact at the end in the theatrical cut either, unless you're going to say that that the final aspect of it all is is a total breakdown that he's having. In the moment before it's about to crash. Mm. Or, or even like that he has in the aftermath of Gretchen's death, totally detached from reality. Mm. Mm. So that was something that I, I was looking at a lot, because there's a lot of stuff here about mental illness, about disassociation with the world, about depression. And about fear, I think in the end, I mean, separate and apart from what the movie, what the narrative is, what the movie is about is fear and growing up. It's about love and fear. Yeah, but it's it's about everyone in the movie is afraid for different reasons. You've got, I forget her name, the Beth Grant character, the, the, the crazy teacher. Yeah, Mrs. Walker? She needs control of things. She, she yeah. is scared of... She needs to make sense of the world. She is the person who would watch this movie and be driven insane by it. And that's why she gloms on to Patrick Swayze's self-help character. He's got this simple thing. It's fear and love and it's a spectrum in between and that's how you understand the world. It's black and white. It's simple. And all of these people have these fears that they're going through and and Donnie is... and, And everyone's sort of like trying to put on a happy face pretend that they've got it all under control and that the whole world makes sense and donnie's the only one who's just kind of like what are you talking about no this is incredibly messy this is incredibly confusing and complex and i don't know what the hell is going on and everyone else is acting like it's totally normal but it makes no sense to me and that that's what's making me feel weird and depressed and afraid I'm afraid and, and, and I can't get anyone to talk to me about that. I feel like, like that's a whole lot of what's going on emotionally throughout the movie as an emotional theme. And that's one of the great things about this movie that again would infuriate some people, but to me really makes it interesting is that that's what I got. That's not what a lot of other people get. Like it's, it's a lot of different interpretations that I think is, is almost like a Rorschach test. It's almost one of those ink blots where you, you look at a, a random shape on a piece of paper and what, what image do you see? What, what does that cloud look like? Some people see, you know, a tower. Other people see a sinister bunny rabbit. It, 
it, and that's that's the thing is that I think that part of an interpretation of what the movie is about per se is going to always have some grounding in who the audience member is, yeah, yeah, and in the way that they look at the world and they interpret the world, and I think that that is probably also why the director's cut has gotten the kind of backlash that it has. Because, again, in that initial theatrical cut of the film, you're being asked to bring in a big part of yourself to fill in the gaps. And when you're no longer being asked to do that in the director's cut to such a great degree, you're still being asked to do that, I think, if you want to get academic about it, then that can feel almost like a rejection. I totally agree. I find being given the context being given the rules of the time travel as they appear in the film really contributed to my takeaway from the movie. It's an argument against apathy. It is an argument for giving a shit, for actually caring about the world around you. Or is it an argument that actually there's no point because it's destiny? I don't think those are contradictory ideas. The movie very pointedly explores the Jim Cunningham philosophy of the two base fears of existence of all human beings being fear and love. Which, if you look into Jim Cunningham's character, you can definitely see that those are his formative emotions. But they are also somewhat the philosophy of the film. Over the course of the film, Donnie moves away from fear, and at the end, what he does is done out of pure love. Yes. But the choice that he makes at the end is not a choice, because that's the whole point of the tangent universe, is it exists and functions in a way that manipulates the living receiver into having no choice. While while he has no choice in that, and he does it anyway, his response to it is one of love. He chooses to no longer be afraid. He knows what he's doing, what he was always supposed to do, was right and that's the love because he's found peace with it peace with his sacrifice he was always going to sacrifice himself now he doesn't fear it now he understands why it's being done it's 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 like that moment in lost temptation of christ he's on the cross but when he comes out of his dream he understands why it had to be done to save everyone despite their flaws despite the cruelty visited upon people this sacrifice was necessary i'm not i'm not going to argue that that he didn't do it out of love well, he did but i also think that it's kind of a little i i don't quite see the whole well he embraces it at the end i i i see a lot of him really being forced into it still he gets to the end and he knows that the world is going to end and everyone's going to die he knows that his girlfriend's already died so he really has no choice. Either he dies with everyone else, or he sacrifices himself to save everyone else. Either way, he dies. Yeah, but over the course of the film, through him getting closer to people, which may be caused by the forces that are pushing him, and are definitely in Gretchen's case, he is being propelled towards doing it out of love rather than doing it out of fear or just a reaction to save everybody i could i don't see that the re i i think that the the reaction to save everybody is i mean i think that argument that you're making would work a whole lot better if gretchen hadn't just been killed 
if she was still alive and he made that choice knowing that he would that he would die but she would live the fact that he has been manipulated into total misery by the end of the tangent universe that he is he is sitting on the hill with the body of his girlfriend while the time funnel opens up it's it's i'm sorry that was just a bizarre sentence to ever hear yeah <laughs> i think there's there's a lot of and and again this goes into the whole idea of fate and destiny that you're talking about and, and it is donnie's argument in the conversation with noah wiley that that the choices we make lead to the same outcome because we're working in god's stream god's time stream what i forget how he puts it but that- well he well the teacher then asks well isn't being able to see the god's stream no, he no. That that's you're you're getting it the wrong way around. He's he's talking about well, what if we were able to see the streams? And the teacher says, well, if you could see your path or channel, then you could see into the future, right? Like uh, that's a form of time travel. Well, you're you're contradicting yourself, Donnie. If we were able to see our destinies manifest themselves visually, then we would be given a choice to betray our chosen destinies. And the mere fact that this this choice exists would make all preformed destiny uh, come to an end. Not if you travel within God's channel. He's he's making the argument that that I think that the tangent uni- the the construct of the tangent universe would seem to support that it's like I don't know it's like a telltale game mm. where you have all this these flavor choices at the end, but <laughs> the final scene is the same no matter what you do. Yeah. Yeah. The, the end point is that, that, that it's always going to happen, that, that, and that's the destiny of it, that you can choose the, the path along the way, but at the end, he was always going to be forced into making this choice. Yeah, and, and that's the argument I'm saying. He's, that's my argument, almost exactly, that he was always going to end up sacrificing himself, but the reason why he's doing it... Is because but... he has no choice. Is because he has been forced into a moment where he has no other option. It's not the fact he has no option, it's how he feels about doing it that changes. He's doing it out of love when, perhaps, if people were crueler to him during the Tangent Universe, or he was crueler to them, he'd be doing it out of a completely different reason. Love and duty can coincide. Alright, I think I'm seeing what you're talking about, yes. It is that flavor that flavor that you discussed in terms of the Telltale games is what we're talking about. It's not a willing sacrifice, is what I'm saying. No, no, it's not a willing sacrifice. But what he chooses to feel from it, how he emotionally responds to his destiny, yeah. has developed over the course of the film to be more compassionate. It's, it's it's like the whole concept of you know Sisyphus and the stone pushing the stone up the boulder up the hill only for it to fall down again. Albert Camus' absurd hero suggests that one must imagine Sisyphus happy. And it's no surprise that Donnie Darko, he gets to the top of the hill, it falls down... See, and, and this to goes happy. to how we interpret his laugh at the end. Yeah. This goes to how we're going to interpret that cackling that he makes as he goes back to sleep and lets the turbine crash in. Because you can you can interpret that as triumphant, as happy, but you can also interpret it as bitter and sarcastic. Um, it, it's directly all up to interpretation, and 
that's what works so strong in the movie's favour. Yes. He is he is making the calculation that he has to die. Mm. When, strictly speaking, by the rules that we have been given in the book, I would argue that that's not necessarily a sure thing. Mm. That he has, at this point, returned the artefact to the Prime Universe and ended the Tangent Universe. If he got out of bed right then and there and walked out into the hallway and avoided that turbine, he has he has already accomplished what he was supposed to accomplish. Uh, but he is also the living receiver. He's no longer. The Tangent Universe is no longer in existence. He has returned the artifact to the Prime Universe. And this is the thing. We're talking technicalities now. Yeah, we are talking technicalities, but restoring the Prime Universe, in the Prime Universe, it would land on him. Yeah. Mm due to no Frank being present to bring him out of bed. But if the Tangent Universe was always destined to happen, then he was always destined to be aware of the turbine before it landed on him. Yes. Exactly. He was always destined to die. Yeah. What was he? Was he? Yes. Because what happens, happens. His death is not what causes the Tangent Universe. No. So then why would him... Do- it causes why him- the closure of the tangent universe, tangent universe. But the Tangent Universe is already closed. Because he... It's closing. The Tangent Universe is, re- is closed by him returning the artifact to the Prime Universe. That's what the book says. And he has already done that. Where, like, the book says that sometimes these Tangent Universes just happen. And there's no explanation for them. No one can figure out why. There's nothing at all that implies that his death is what causes the Tangent Universe to begin. So no, then, no, no, I'm not saying that it causes it. I'm saying that his death closes it. But it doesn't, because he has already gone back to the Prime Universe. That's why he's in bed again. He's back in the Prime Universe at that point. If he got out of bed at that point and left, there's, there's, there's nothing within the text or subtext of the film, in my view, that indicates that he has to die in that moment. I'm not saying that there's anything that indicates that he doesn't have to die in that moment either. I'm saying that at the end, it's kind of ambiguous as to whether his death is necessary. And I suppose, actually, that now that I'm thinking it out in this way, I I really appreciate the opportunity to get to talk about this movie at length because it's, it's a fascinating film to unpack. But I suppose now that I'm talking out of it this way, you can argue that that is his willing sacrifice. Mm. That that at the end, yeah. he could roll that dice, but he doesn't. He stays in bed. Yeah, and who's to say that if it doesn't land on him, if he does leave the room again, it just doesn't all happen again? Who's to say that? I feel like you'd try it out. <laughs> you know, you know the <laughs> yeah, tension universe. You know the rules of the tension universe. You know what you've got to do if it doesn't work. So you work. get another twenty-eight days. Yeah, you get another. You get another shot at it. Is it your Majora's Mask? That yeah, Groundhog Day, Groundhog Month, really. But look, I think. I know we're hitting on it a lot, but I think the use of referencing The Last Temptation of Christ is in the fact that within The Last Temptation of Christ, within the Passion story, the sacrifice that Jesus makes is God's will, right? So, in that sense, it is predetermined to happen. But Donnie's not being tempted. I agree with you that that... that is important that that thing is there. The same way it's important that the evil dead is there, the the whole possession idea of taking control of someone else's body. Or, you know, Frank as an idea. Like, the, the, the figure of Frank could be- very easily be looked at as one of the possessed 
people in Evil Dead. Yeah, the the discussed ideas of the dangers of prophecy in Watership Down. Yes. All of that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. But... It's not one-to-one. Yeah, it's not a temptation. There's nothing for him if he stays in the Tangent Universe, because the Tangent Universe is going to be ending. He's not seeing the life that he could lead if he had not made the choices that that lead up to this point. He's seeing a cul-de-sac in time that was never supposed to happen in the first place. He's being tempted with the opportunity, just like in Last Temptation of Christ, at the end of the temptation, Christ, uh, as a man, is dying. And he is being shown what his sacrifice means. In a sick way, he's given a gift. Yes, I'm, I'm with you here, Harley. I'm not with John. I'm not with what John's doing. Much like in The Lost Temptation of Christ, in a sick way, he's given a gift. Yes. He's given what he wants. Mm. But he understands that what he wants is not what's necessary. Yeah. He gets to see He gets to see how important his demise is. Yeah. He gets to see what he's paying for, yeah. which is the same as what happens in Lost Temptation of Christ. He sees what he's paying for. Let's talk a little bit about some other elements of this film. I want to talk about the Smurf thing. (laughs) Let's do the Smurf thing first. (laughs) Because there's a very interesting piece of trivia attached to that. Oh, yes. That is canon. (laughs) That is canon for Smurfs. (laughs) They they originally had that in the script, and when they shoved that to the people who created the Smurfs, the discussion of the Smurf gangbang is troubling to them. But Donnie accurately, and using the presented canon debunks the fact that Smurfs could have a gangbang, discussing the fact that... First of all, Papa Smurf didn't create Smurfette. Gargamel did. She was sent in as Gargamel's evil spy with the intention of destroying the Smurf village, but the overwhelming goodness of the Smurf way of life transformed her. And as for the whole gangbang scenario, (laughs) it just couldn't happen. Smurfs are asexual. They, They don't even have... Reproductive organs under those little white pants. Damn it, Donnie. Why, why do you gotta get so smart on us? That's why they allowed the movie to use the Smurfs in the first place. I love the idea of the <laughs> meeting where the people from Peyo read that. And it's like, oh, p- person reading it? They're starting to go for their pearls. And then when Donnie's lines happen... They just move their hand away from their pearls. Well, they they didn't need their okay to actually have that dialogue in the script. They no. did need the okay to feature the Smurf doll in the film. Yeah. And that's what saved them, was Tony's rebuttal. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a great little, like, Tarantino-esque piece. Like, that's the, yeah. the Madonna's like a virgin in yeah. Reservoir Dogs, bit of, like, a crass, unnecessarily complicated pop cultural dissection. <laughs> Basically, what we do. Yeah. What the last forty minutes has. Oh been. yeah, but it was with something a little more, a little more in depth than where the Smurfs have gangbangs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you did try and get us to think about the anatomy of Donkey and Dragon and Shrek a few weeks back, John. You already brought up the anatomy of Shrek, by the way. Yes, that's a good point. <laughs> if a Smurf has blue balls, do they just call it? balls no because they have no balls no if they were to have balls but they don't they wouldn't that's not the point that is the point fine would not the i don't i don't want to have this conversation but i find myself having it would not the rush of blood make blue 
turn purple. <laughs> you make an excellent That's a point. Good point. This is what I learned in art class that red added to blue makes purple. <laughs> but we don't know the color of Smurf blood. Gargamel should know. I will Google that. <laughs> or, or are they homunculus with no blood? And sustained themselves purely on magic. Were they formed out of clay, much like Adam in the garden? I've typed in yeah. what colour is Smurf, and the autofills are Smurf blood, what colour is Smurf yes. poop, what colour is Smurf hair, what colour are Smurf's tongues, and what colour do Smurfs go when choked? <laughs> <laughs> I, I hate that last one. That is someone with an extremely specific fetish. <laughs> A horrifically specific fetish. That's somebody who clearly wants Donnie to be wrong. That that person is definitely <laughs> gonna have to get a strongly worded letter from the creators of the Smurfs. Alright, okay, so I have found an image of a Smurf blushing in a comic. Okay. Right. And they turn purple. Okay, well, so well, that actually, you go. yeah, fair then enough. They, then they must have red blood because blushing is the effect of... Blood running through More veins blood flow. And... I'm glad that okay. we sorted this out. Just, we sorted that just out. as important. Wasn't, you were right from the get go. Just as important a conversation <laughs> as our conversation earlier on. The movie brought it up. Yeah. It is a great little bit of business between those friends. And Gyllenhaal plays it so perfectly. Hmm. He just looks so fed up with the idea <laughs> being floated that he's like, look, I'm going to explain it to you. The thing about... I, I like what Dylan Hall's doing here, except when he's talking to Frank. I don't like his I'm a two-year-old all of a sudden thing that he does whenever he's talking to Frank. The way that he sort of has that silly smile come across his face and starts talking like this. I do like the bit in the cinema, though, mm. when he sees Frank take off the suit and becomes terrified because he recognises Frank. Yeah, I suppose he would, wouldn't he? Because that's the other thing that that is just the only place this has ever been mentioned is in the audio commentary, is that Frank is his sister's boyfriend. No shit? Yeah. I I put those pieces together myself. The scene at the start where she arrives home before the Tangent Universe is created, there's no car beeping. But at the end, once the Tangent Universe has been resolved and we see that scene again... This time, Frank beeps. Mm. And I think that's that's not for her, that's for Donnie. Mm-hmm. That's a great line, too, is... Why are you wearing that stupid bunny suit? Why are you wearing that stupid man suit? Because, again, it goes into what I was talking about. It, it's the, the, the suit that everyone puts on and pretends that they're okay. Pretends that they're they're not afraid. Pretends that it's all working out well. Pretends that they're a good person. Hmm. Pretends that they're a giant scary rabbit instead of a scared ghost. I only read about it afterwards and I didn't go back and check, but apparently, because cause once Frank is killed, he has the ability to move as a spirit throughout the Tangent Universe's timeline. Mm-hmm. Apparently you can see that spirit version of Frank observing his own death. In the background yeah. of that scene. There are a lot of really little details like that. I mean, moving on to Cunningham, there's that scene where they're watching the dodgy old 80s self-help videos. 
I can you imagine what the discussion with Swayze would have been like for the director to be working with essentially an icon and have to direct him and say, look, we're going to film this little section of the film to be shown on a TV. We're going to film it on like a VHS camera or whatever. And I want you to turn to the screen, to the camera and say, Love. Well, Swayze seemed like he was on board for it. Like that was filmed in his backyard. That was filmed before the rest of it at Patrick Swayze's house. The clothes that he is wearing are Patrick Swayze's own 80s clothes. His wife, like, spent the morning digging out his old clothes and saying, oh, Patrick, I think you should wear the pink shirt. Stuff like that. This is in the the documentary on the Arrow disc. They talk about that because that was something that they brought in, that they edited as quickly as they could so they could have something to show to the cast and the crew so that they could kind of understand what was going on there. They have the whole extended raw footage of it on the disc as well. <laughs> and the kid, his mother's like... For two years, I thought it was normal for a 10-year-old to wet the bed. We tried everything. But the solution was there all the time. I'm not afraid anymore! He's the same kid as is in the auditorium. The, the third kid that comes up at the end. He's a plant. They're all plants. Yeah. Donnie's the only one who's not a plant. The, the second kid, the first male, is the older brother in iCarly. And Fran Kranz pops up at the end as the passenger in Frank's car. I'm seeing a lot of these little identifiers. But yes, there's, there's the whole Cunningham thing, which again plays in a whole facade thing about that his whole pitch is coming up with an easily understandable explanation for the world. Mm. And that's what he sells. And people like Beth Grant lap it up. Beth Grant, by the way, my God, I love Beth Grant. She's so good in this. I'm always so happy when she turns up in it. She's just quietly one of the most underrated comedic actors. She is excellent at all times. And my favourite beat of the film, really, is... I mean, there's her encounter in the classroom with (laughs) Donnie, where he basically tells her that it's all bullshit. And then it cuts to the principal's office where the principal is meeting with Donnie's, Donnie's parents. parents and Donnie's in the background too. And it's just the shot, reverse shot of the principal and the family. And that's all you see is the principal and the family. And then he's like, so, so Donnie, let's run through this again. What exactly did you say? Then the camera shot of the principal pans over to reveal that Beth Grant's been in the corner the whole time. Let's go over this again. What exactly did you say to Ms. Farmer? I'll tell you what he said. He asked me to forcibly insert the lifeline exercise cart into my anus. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> such a great line delivery, like outstanding. And then the way that the father smirks and has to hide it as a cough. He thinks it's he thinks it's hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah his Donnie's parents are so great, aren't they? Yeah. I love the part where they're having dinner together. I don't think telling any woman to forcibly insert an object up her anus is something that should go without consequence. I think we should buy him a moped. I think we should get a divorce. And then they both smile. Yeah. They just enjoy (laughs) each other far too much to do anything like that. They love each other too much. Hmm. 
I, I like Donnie's mother in this because she has that amazing scene where that particular teacher was like, oh, I need you to go with the girl so I can defend Jim Cunningham of the <laughs> terrible allegations against him. When she's been questioning her experience as a mother this whole time, yeah. and then she ends it with the beautiful quote. Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. <laughs> but it's so sad when the mother, when you actually trace it back, the last thing in the Prime Universe that Donnie says to her is, as, as she's walking away from his bedroom, she hears him call her a bitch. That's their yeah. last interaction. But she does stay in there for a small minute and doesn't go back to that room to make for sure he feels like shit. Oh, but he doesn't know that she's standing out there, though. It's like, I think it's her, it's her absorbing that blow, but also her trying to decide whether she's actually going to escalate it or not. Yeah. And instead she, she goes in and she tells her husband. He tells her exactly what she needs to hear. Her son just called me a bitch. You're not a bitch. You're bitching. But you're not a bitch. <laughs> And it's like he's not—he's not trying to minimize no. how much that would have hurt her. He knows how that hurt her, and he's telling her exactly what she needs to hear in that moment. Yeah, he—he's telling her you're not in the wrong. Mm. They so very much love Donnie. Yeah, all of them and, do. And, and care about him. His whole family does. The way that the parents are contextualized in this is really good. Like he, Richard Kelly, takes time to make sure that that he gives. He, he plays what they're going through truthfully. Yeah. He doesn't just focus so solely on Donnie that the parents come off as, as props in his own story. The parents, what the parents are going through with what their son is going through and the way that they're trying to contend with that, that is given proper weight. And I love that scene between the dad and Donnie where mm. they're just having a chat and he's trying to help Donnie through it and he says... Yeah. I'm crazy. You're not crazy. Yeah. And it's like you're just different and you're having a tough time. And he says exactly what I've been saying. He says, like, whatever happens to you, be honest. Tell the truth. Even if they do look at you funny, they will. But what you've got to understand, son, is that almost all of those people are full of shit. It's all just a conspiracy of bullshit. Everyone is pretending the whole time. Yeah. yeah. It's such a small line, but it's such an evocative line. It's it's something that I like it when scripts do is that they hint at something that you don't need to know the the full story behind, but it gives an added sort of dimension to it. He he says to Donnie, "You're not crazy. I used to be crazy. But you're not crazy." Mm-hmm. Like it, it's just that little thing that Makes you sit and think, huh, I wonder what that's about. I mean, I think of, like, there's there's a character in Doctor Who. Like the, comes the, the, back to the Doctor. Well, it reminded me of it because we had already been talking about it earlier this episode, but there's a guest character in one of the Doctor Whos who has this really bitter relationship with another guest character in Doctor Who. And he ends up sacrificing himself to save everyone else. But the last thing he says is over the radio to this person who's got this bitter relationship is he says, you never could forgive me. We never get an explanation for that, mm. but it's so loaded and it, I like it when scripts do that. Yeah. Mm. It's context. It's nice context. Yeah. 
let's talk about the ending. Well, hang on. I just want to point out that I, I, I don't want to move on to the ending before we've, we've talked about the school stuff as well. Um, but I do want to point out that the kid's sister is the voice of Lilo in Lilo and Stitch. Yeah. And is yep. Samara in The Ring. Yeah. Yep. Like, I, I find, back to the character of Jim Cunningham, like, the director has said that his child exploitation ring would have been found out at around the same time as it did in the Tangent universe, in the actual universe. Well, yeah. In 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 the all of the extra stuff that he said over the years and all the extra information that he's put out, it has since become canon that... I mean, that's why he's crying at the end, is because he... He remembers parts of it. That's It's like he's woken up from a dream, and that was his dream. And that's why they're all sitting there awake at the end. That's why he's crying, and canon is that he takes his own life a few days later. Well, that sort of broke the tone, didn't it? Yep. <laughs> I, I love that ending montage over the faces of the manipulated dead. Oh, yeah. With the Gary Jules version of Mad World playing over it. It's so evocative of what the movie is going for. You get each of these different characters responding to what their experience was in the Tangent Universe, and you get Frank touched near his eye, and I get the sense he can just, he can still feel it. Yeah, they can all recall as if in a dream. I mean, the ones that died, that's part of the other thing at the the end, is that the ones that in the in the little interstitials with the notes from the book is that the ones that die remember more than the ones yes. that didn't. Yeah. And that's why at the end, like, the last scene is the mother and Gretchen waving to each other because they both had died in the other universe. They could both remember each other, but they couldn't quite place where. Yeah. But, the I mean, the music, Mad World. I mean, that's such a glorious cover. Yeah. Like, there's some great needle drops yeah. here. There's the Mad World. You got Never Tear Us Apart. Not featured there. It's the killing hour, or whatever it's called, the killing time. There's Under the Milky Way by the church, which is just a bob. Yeah, in the theatrical cut, they don't use Never Tear Us Apart. They use that other song. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, Mad World was just like, I mean, it was done for the film, this cover of it. I mean, it sort of overshadowed the original Tears for Fears version. Yeah, and the Tears for Fears version is maniacal. <laughs> I like I like both of them, but I think I prefer the cover. Hmm. It got to like number one in the UK at Christmas time. Yeah, <laughs> what a jolly Christmas jingle <laughs> that came over Santa's radio in the sled, and he just got really depressed all of a sudden. <laughs> no, it came over his radio in the sled, just angles the sleigh down. <laughs> I like all the stuff with the teachers as well. Yeah, I like the stuff with Drew Barrymore. She's gold in this. Yeah. And Noah Wiley, I love Noah Wiley. I'm always so happy when he turns up in things. He doesn't get nearly enough work. I, I love the scene with him and Donnie where they're discussing it. And the way that Wiley plays it as he starts to realise the territory things are getting into. Until finally he's just like, I can't continue having this conversation. I could lose my job. Yeah. You can see the, the dawning 
realization behind these his eyes of like, oh god, I shouldn't have given this kid that time travel book. Yeah. <laughs> This is the wrong kid to give that book to. Also, you've got an early appearance from Seth Rogen. His first line in any film is, I like your boobs. Yeah. How indicative of the rest of his career is that? (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, Seth Rogen and Jake Gyllenhaal met up with each other at the premiere or something, or at the party for the premiere. And they both agreed that they didn't understand a single thing yeah. the movie was about. There, is, there actually seems to be material that was cut from the director's cut. Mm. That was in the theatrical cut. There's some footage, I only saw it in special features on the disc, when they were referring to scenes in the movie and they used, and they showed footage from those scenes and that, that footage was not in the director's cut, so it must have been theatrical. Like the scene where Drew Barrymore is fired... There's more, of, would appear to have been more of that in the theatrical cut. There's shots of her challenging the principal, basically, saying, we're losing these kids. Yeah. She's sort of, again, being kind of a mouthpiece for what Kelly is, is getting at here with the way that the world works. I loved it, how how the principal shuts down the conversation. Like, he shuts down the conversation so brutally. It's like, I am sorry that you failed. <laughs> so... Unless you have anything to add? Nope. No, I believe I think that's all. we covered it all, actually. Just wait till people try and deconstruct the timeline we're talking mm. about. Oh, yeah, this would have been totally incomprehensible to anyone who hasn't seen that movie. Oh, yeah. we in a tangent universe <laughs> and all of this coronavirus thing is just... Nah. Nah, it would have been 28 days, bro. Yeah, we're, we're not in a tangent universe. We're in the parallel universe that has to be sacrificed to save the prime universe. We're, we're the, the dark dystopian... <laughs> parallel people get stranded in and have to fight their way back to the nice universe yeah we're in the fifth point so why don't we each go around and say who our mvp was for this movie and what our favorite scene or sequence was i will start us off and i will say that i can't give it to to richard kelly as much as that might seem the the obvious thing here and as much of this movie is him he seems very confused with what was the right way to present this story in his head. It's a brilliant story. It's a very interesting story, and he's got a lot of really cool ideas. But the way that he just just haphazardly thrown out information over director's cuts and audio commentaries and limited edition books bundled with special edition DVDs, that's, that's not... I can't give it to him because of the fractured way that he has told his story. So I'm actually going to go with Drew Barrymore. I really like the character that she's playing here, but she is also crucial in this movie ever getting made at all. Mm. She is a producer. Her company funded this film. And she is was instrumental in Donnie Darko getting off the ground at all. She's a very fun presence as the teacher. She is one of the characters that I like the most in the, the film. I love the scene where he goes in to see her near the end and she tells him that she's been fired and he says, that's bullshit. Like the only good teacher here. Thank you. <laughs> Again, another example of of the the manipulated people doing things that don't really make sense. The fact that she writes Celador, just apropos of nothing. So yeah, Drew Barrymore. In terms of my favorite scene or sequence, I'm going to go with the ending, the Mad World montage. It, it it's such a great little punch. That music coming in and you seeing all the faces and 
it works so well. The image and the sound work so well. It's it's one of those moments of music being so incredibly important to the fundamental DNA of what a scene is and what a movie is. I've got to go with that one. My MVP would have to be Jay Gyllenhaal. This was one of his early films, and he has such a command over his performance. Yes, he has those bits where he's doing that sort of like Kubrick stare thing into the mirror when talking to Frank, but when you look at the rest of his performance, he's bringing something very interesting in here. He plays Donnie as conflicted and apathetic at the beginning, but still clearly intelligent. And over the course, he really does sell that character development, becoming more compassionate, becoming more loving, becoming more patient with people. And frankly, I just really like Jake Gyllenhaal as an actor. I think he has a lot going for him in the roles that he chooses. And I can't wait, because after this point, we're going to see more Jake Gyllenhaal and stuff. We're going to be discussing more movies with him in it. My favorite scene would have to be the scene where they're in the cinema. And all the context that that double feature provides mm. when he's talking to Frank, the music playing. I love that piece of music so much that when I was doing one of my direction projects in the theater course, I used that song, Burn It to the Ground, because the play I was doing was directly inspired by Donnie Darko. But that's not the song that plays. Burn It to the Ground is on the soundtrack, and I think is used briefly in it, but the primary song that's used there is for whom the bell tolls, which is not on the soundtrack. Again, excruciatingly. Mm -hmm. It's such a great scene because it has that interaction between Donnie and Frank. It has Donnie realizing something that he must do to bring this timeline to a close. Uh, because it is important that he conjures fire as the living receiver. Because he already did conjure water at the school by busting the pipes. I just really, really dig it. But I also love the scene where he sees the time spears for the first time, like snaking through the house. I just think that's a really charming way of visualizing. Oh yeah, and th but then it gets so chilling when it leads him to the gun. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're thinking it's going to be used in a much different way than it ends up oh, being yeah. used. For me, I have to give it to Patrick Swayze, because this was such a Hail Mary of a choice uh, of a character to play. Because if you look at Swayze's... The, the movies that Swayze was most well-known for, you've got movies from the 80s and early 90s. Dirty Dancing, Roadhouse, Point Break, Ghost. He was the charming frontman. He was, he was charismatic, charming. He was the romantic lead. He was Brad Pitt before Brad Pitt. And in this, he plays a monster, basically. A, a, an awful, dreadful person who is given depth by Swayze. And it's just an exceptional performance from him. Sort of in the in the comedic sense of the, you know, vi the little VHS videos. And also in the part where he's crying at the end of the movie. It's just so powerful. And a brave choice from Swayze. I think the part of the movie that is sort of jumping out at me at the moment is the discussion of of Watership Down. How it's Donnie frightened. He doesn't want to be the living receiver. He doesn't want to have to sacrifice himself. He's scared. And he is railing against the characters in Watership Down and is saying, they're just rabbits. Why should we care? 
when he's just like Fiverr. He's seeing something that's going to come, and he has to do something about it. And I just think the metatextual stuff in this film is so, so well used. And, yeah, it's just brilliant. It actively rewards you knowing what these things are that they're talking about. So, Lawson, we've already alluded to something we're going to be watching next week. Why don't you reveal it in full to the audience? Sure. Well, as anyone with the vaguest of critical thinking skills has probably figured out, we're beginning to address the Harry Potter movies next week. We are going to be doing what we did with Star Wars. We will be splitting... The whole series over three episodes. So, next week we will be talking about Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, and Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. The week after that we will be talking about Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire and Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, and the week after that we will be talking about Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, and Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Parts 1 and 2. If you would like to follow along at home, all three of these movies are available in the same places, in Australia at least. They are available for streaming on Binge and Foxtel Now, as well as for purchase and rental on the Q Store, the Apple Store, the Amazon Store, the YouTube Store, and the Fetch Store. If you want to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Extra Dead the Candy County. You can find Sean and myself at On the Bright Side. You can also contact us through our Twitter where you can provide episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations for John and myself. You can also comment, rate, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind that commenting on the podcast apps is, for the show on the whole, less episode-specific. If you do comment, like, and subscribe, it looks good to the algorithm and helps us get noticed. In the not-too-distant future, however, I will do everything in my power to not be noticed. But my fear will betray me as the mutant hounds catch my scent. The microwavable burrito I found was a bad idea, I reflect, as the hounds set upon me, rending my limbs asunder. I wake up screaming, my reality coming into focus. You were having a nightmare, Marcus says, helping me up from the floor of our containment pen. Marcus is a kind man of 73 with a salt and pepper beard and thin frame. No old timer, it was a dream. I respond looking out at the world around me. It will be roll call soon. Our metal overlords are anything but tardy. I miss the hounds already. Yes! Yes! I love this! Outstanding. Legitimately, I think well, that might be the best thing you've ever written. Close to. I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. I have been, and I will continue to be Sean Lewis. Oh, shit.